You know, the most tragic effect of sin on the human heart is the longing not only to reject God, but to be God. Not just to reject God, but to become God ourselves. That is, to be in control, to rule our own lives, to make our own calls, to make our own laws, to be sovereign, autonomous beings where the masters of our own fate and the captain of our own souls. The problem is not so much that we sin as people, but that the nature of sin is inherently idolatrous. That sin is taking something that's not God and loving it and worshiping it and trying to be satisfied in it as if it were God. And what I'm claiming is at the end of the day, we are the God trying to take God's place. I mean, was this not the issue in the Garden of Eden? Was it not what pushed our first parents over the edge, the promise, you will be like God? Was this not the issue at the Tower of Babel? Come, Let us build a tower that reaches into heaven and let us make a name for us. Is this not what drives the sexual revolution and the transgender movement and the entire postmodern rejection of truth? And is it not the ghastly root of every sin that people commit, namely that God is being replaced Professing to be wise, Paul says, we were born fools and exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. What's my point? My point is very simply this. What we as people need to heal us from our idolatry is not merely an alteration of our behavior but an arresting of our affections. We we don't just need to shake a few bad habits or try a little harder, but to be clobbered by the glory of the triune God. You understand, to slay the idols of the soul and our sins at the deepest possible root, what we need from God is to break us to intervene and capture our worshiping gaze, to ravish our souls and set us free from our idols by an unmatched beauty. You see that right there? That's how people get saved. That's how people get changed. That's how we be free from the worship of the self. That's exactly the prophet Isaiah's agenda in chapter 44. He's going after idols hard. And he's swinging for the fences. In fact, chapter 44 is a little bit like a mixed martial arts fight against idolatry. And Isaiah uses every single theological technique that he can find to root it out in the hearts of his people and to put it to death. The prophet uses eschatology. 
He uses mockery. He uses theology. He uses the, God's sovereignty to show the absurdity of idolatry because you understand, don't you, that, that idolatry was why the people of God were headed to Babylon in the first place, right? You remember that it was hardwired into the covenant that should they get entangled with sin, should they get in bed with idols, should they abandon the word of God, which they had done, that God would remove his shield of protecting grace and send in enemy armies just like Babylon to invade them and crush them and take them as slaves. And in 586 BC, that is exactly what he did. It's exactly what happened. And ever since then, the Jews have never been the same. They have never fully recovered from that. And yet they will recover because this very chapter reveals and predicts that they will recover at the end of the age, forgiven and redeemed in the kingdom of the Messiah. And yet the thing, the thing that makes chapter 44 so powerful and poignant, get this, very profound what I'm about to say, what makes chapter 44 so profound is that it comes between chapters 40 through 48. Pretty deep, right? That seems obvious, but my point is very simply this. You see, chapters 40 through 48, those are designed to be a unit. Those are a series of chapters that logically fit together to give a message. And the message of chapters 40 through 48, listen very carefully, is this. It's despite what it seems on the surface, there is hope for the people of Israel. There is hope even for them. Blind, apostate, headed to captivity, there is bulletproof hope for the people of Israel. That's the message of chapters 40 through 48. And the reason why there is hope for them is simply because Yahweh, their God, is matchless and supreme. That's the message of chapters 40 through 48. There is hope because Yahweh has matchless, unrivaled, absolute supremacy over everything. He's supreme over creation. He's supreme over nations. He's supreme over kings. And you see how chapter 44 fits in the mix? Is that it takes a theological shotgun and simply unloads on idolatry. From every possible angle, chapter 44 exposes idolatry to be utter insanity in light of God's supremacy. And you see, the reason why idolatry matters to you and me is not because we have a statue of Baal or Molech sitting on the shelf, but because idolatry is the definitive issue in each of our hearts. Beneath the struggles on the surface, lurking in shadows that only God can see, is that God is being replaced. And so Isaiah 44 is a theological hammer to shatter our idols as ridiculous and to put God on display as glorious. Here we go. This morning I want you to see from our text Two more ways, two more ways that Yahweh purges idolatry and produces faith in him alone. Last week we looked at three ways. Now this morning we look at two more ways that Yahweh purges idolatry and produces faith in him alone. And last week, what did we see? Review, number one. We saw that Yahweh purges idolatry through the salvation he provides. 
He purges idolatry through the salvation he provides, and in particular, the salvation he will bring at the end of the age. Remember that in verses 1 through 5? In other words, God exposes, get this now, God exposes the folly of idolatry through the doctrine of eschatology. God gives this riveting theatrical preview of the kingdom that he will bring at the end of the age. He'll remove the curse of sin. He'll pour out streams of the desert. He'll pour out his spirit on dead people, bringing life to barren souls. And you understand, don't you, that that preview of the kingdom is one of God's means to purging idolatry out of his people. How does that work? Because... All of the security we try to find in our idols in the present can only be found in the God who controls the future. That's the logic. Number two, review. Yahweh purges idolatry through the supremacy he portrays. He purges idolatry through the supremacy he portrays. In other words, the way to slay the idols of the soul is to see that Yahweh is supreme. That who God is and and the glory of his perfections is what dwarfs our counterfeit gods as pathetic and weak. In other words, in verses 6 through 8, God gives the deepest reason, the deepest reason why idols are pathetic and ridiculous. And the reason why they are is himself. He himself is the reason. Look at verses 6 through 8 and look at the way that God speaks about himself. Thus says Yahweh. The King of Israel and his Redeemer, Yahweh of hosts, I am the first, I am the last, and besides me there is no God. And who is like me? Let him proclaim it, let him declare it, let him recount it to me in order. From the time I established an ancient people and let them declare to them the things which are coming and the things which will take place. Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Was it not from long ago that I made it known and I have declared it and you are my witnesses? Is there a God besides me and is there any other rock? I know of none and God would know, wouldn't he? You see there, Yahweh is king. He's redeemer, he's the first and the last. There is no God or rock beside himself. What is the point? The point is, that is the power. That is the heavy artillery against the absurdity of idolatry, namely the beauty of his supremacy. You understand, don't you? The heart of idolatry is the entertainment of any thought about God that is not worthy of him, that does not come from his word, that does not see him as lofty and exalted. Which means the way to slay the idols of the heart is to fill your mind with thoughts about God. With God's thoughts about God. And when you are staggered by his glory from the pages of scripture, all the idols that charm you most are exposed as pathetic and weak. But then number three, review. Last week, we also saw that Yahweh purges idolatry through the stupidity of idolatry. He he presents the stupidity of idolatry. In other words, in verses 9 through 20, the largest portion in the chapter, Isaiah goes behind the scenes and shows step by step how idols are made. Like when you buy something at Ikea, here are the instructions. Here's how to make an idol. And in so doing, kills the power that idols possess. 
Once you see where idols come from, they lose their magic. They lose their power. You see how ridiculous it is. He shows how idols are made. God grows tree. Man cuts tree. Man shapes wood. Man worships and prays to the God that he made. And with the rest of the wood, he makes a fire, bakes his bread, warms his house, and does not see that what he is doing is utterly insane. Because all idolatry is, because worship is an issue, isn't it? Worship is an issue, not just for superstitious pagans that play with voodoo dolls, but for every soul in every age, because the human heart is, as Calvin said, a perpetual factory of idols. So that's how. That's how to purge idolatry out of our lives and how to produce faith in our lives. And yet Isaiah's not done. There are two more ways he does that. That brings us to number four. And before the fourth way that Yahweh purges idolatry, number four, through the sin that he pardons. Through the sin that he pardons. Because what does Romans 2, 4 say? It says the kindness of God leads you to repentance. The kindness of God leads you to repentance. That's exactly what we see here. The kindness of God on full display as he offers to his people forgiveness and pardon for their sin. Look at verses 21 through 23. He says, remember these things, O Jacob, and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. Notice, I have or even will wipe out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a heavy mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Shout for joy, O heavens. Why? For Yahweh has done it. Break forth into shouting, O depths of the earth. Give a shout, O mountains, with a shout of joy. O oh, forest and every tree that is in it, why? For Yahweh has redeemed Jacob, and in Israel he will reveal his glory. Now you see it, right? How this fits in a chapter fighting idolatry? It doesn't attack idols directly, but instead reveals their stupidity by showing the supremacy of God's grace. You see, unlike the nations who make you grovel for forgiveness, here is a God who cleanses. Here is a God who redeems. Here is a God who forgives. Here is a God who loves his people and even coming one day to dwell among his people. And notice, notice how Yahweh pleads with his people to repent and believe. Verse 21, remember these things, O Jacob. And Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. Now, it seems small, but it's not small. Notice that Yahweh calls his people Jacob and Israel. Not Judah and Israel as in a divided kingdom that needs to be united. But instead, notice, God goes back and addresses them by the names of old back when they used to be united. Do you see what he's doing there? That's very clever. The point is they weren't that at the time, but they would be that in the future, which indicates that all the promises God has made to them will be fulfilled in full. 
And notice what God tells them to do. He says, remember these things. Remember these things. What things? What things are they supposed to remember? Notice, you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. You see that, right? Twice. Twice God calls Israel his servant. That is massive in its importance. Absolutely massive. And the reason why is because that title, listen carefully, that title reveals the role of Israel in the plan of history. You see, God did not just choose Israel as an end in itself. He chose Israel as a means to an end, namely to be his light to the world, his kingdom of priests, his servant to bring salvation to the nations, but they blew it with their sin. And temporarily they lost their position as God's servant to the world. And yet, and yet the fact that God twice calls them his servant very simply means that one day their position as his servant will be fully reinstated. That's why it is so, hang with me, this is kind of technical, that's why it's so important that the Messiah is called the servant in chapter 42. Why? Because as the servant, he would come as a Jew, save the Jews, and reinstate the role of servant to the Jews. I don't know if that makes sense, but there's a clear connection there. I guess the point is, eschatological hope is in every single syllable of this text, especially at the end of verse 21. Look what he says. Yahweh declares, O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. How could they be? How could they be forgotten by God? I mean, mean, the same God who formed them as a nation... Is the very same God who will not forget them as a nation. And what this means is that all of the covenants and promises that he had made to his people would be fulfilled in full. God's not going to take his promises, his covenants, and, and the things that he promised to give them and somehow slip his mind. That's it. Israel sinned. The plan's over. The covenants are canceled. I'm going to start a church now. No, God will not forget the vows that he made. He will not forget the covenants that he swore, the the promises that were sealed in the blood of his son. And you understand, don't you, that the promise of verse 21 is just as true for you as it was, as it is for Israel. You understand you are not Israel. But like Israel, Israel, you too will not be forgotten by God. How could you be? How could you be forgotten by God? Your names were written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. The Father singled you out and gave you to his Son to purchase and redeem. The Son is at the right hand of the Father as we speak, interceding for you. Your name is always coming up in conversation between the persons of the Trinity. How could you be forgotten by God? And therein lies the foundation of our hope and our joy and our courage and our perseverance to the end. And speaking of the end, Look at verses 22 and 23. God God tips his hand and reveals what's coming in the future. Notice what he says. He says, 
I have wiped out your transgressions like a cloud. And your sins like a heavy mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Shout for joy, O heavens, for Yahweh has done it. Shout joyfully, or, or break forth in a shout of joy, O lower parts of the earth. Break forth in joy, O mountains, O forest and every tree that is in it. For Yahweh has redeemed Jacob, and in Israel he will reveal his glory. Now, I understand that your Bible puts all of that in the past tense as if that had already happened, but it hadn't. None of that had happened. And it still has not happened to this day. But you understand what this is as a technique of the prophets. To take something that has not happened and yet speak of it as if it had happened was a way to say that this definitely will most certainly happen in the future. It is guaranteed. It is, in other words, as good as done. And yet the question is, what's going to happen to the guilty, sin-stained people of Israel? What does the text say? Only full forgiveness and pardon of their sin. And notice there in verse 22, we like forgiveness, right? We like to talk about forgiveness. Here's a theology of forgiveness in one verse. Notice verse 22, the two features of forgiveness. Number one, look at the targets, the two targets of forgiveness. Look what he says. I have wiped out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a heavy mist. What is that? You know what that is? That is, those two words are a summary way to describe every possible sin that a sinner could commit. Transgression is rebellion and defiance, all the terrible sins we mean to do. That second word, sin, describes the failures of our fallen flesh. That's the pollution and corruption of our heart, the innumerable sins that just pile up throughout a day and throughout our lives that we don't even think of and we don't even notice and we don't even, we don't even take them into to account. And yet, what does God say? I forgive them all. Because notice number two, the two terms for forgiveness, the two terms of forgiveness. In other words, look at how forgiveness is described. He says, I have or I will blot out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a heavy mist. I don't misunderstand that. God is not saying that he will cover their sins with a cloud. He's not saying that he's going to coat their sins with a heavy mist, as in they're still behind the cloud somewhere, but let's pretend like they're not, even though they really are out of sight, out of mind. Let's just pretend that's not the picture at all, because you understand that word wipe out, blot out, literally means to wipe out completely, even to destroy. It is to obliterate out of existence. Do you see? No, you understand their transgressions are the thick cloud. Their sins are the heavy mist and they are what will get destroyed and obliterated out of existence. Do you see? Like the sun and the wind that dissipate the clouds and make them disappear so the sun and wind of God's mercy will dissipate their sins and make their transgressions disappear. 
which is just a powerful picture of what sin does. And it's a powerful picture of what forgiveness is, isn't it? Because you realize, don't you, that sin, sin is way, way more serious than merely doing naughty things or breaking a few rules, right? No, you, you understand sin is cosmic treason against the Creator. And what sin does, you understand, is breach our view of the glory of God. It blinds, it ruptures, it separates, it obscures, it hides the living God behind the clouds of his anger so that ruined sinners stumble around, groping in the darkness, headed to destruction. Apart from the sovereign grace and intervention of God, there is no hope for us. I still remember, I still remember the time, the very first time I heard Isaiah 59, verse 2. It was the night of my conversion. I had never heard it before. And it says, your sins have made a separation between you and your God so that he does not hear you. You understand and agree, don't you? Sin rests lightly on the American conscience. Sin rests lightly on the American church, meaning most do not feel that sin is that big of a deal, and yet it is a cataclysmically big deal. And it will and must be dealt with either on the Son of God at the cross or on the sinner themselves forever in hell. Either way, the wrath of God for sin has got to go somewhere. Who God is demands it so. My question, my question for you is, is there anyone still here Blinded by the clouds of iniquity. Anyone? Is there anyone here still groping in the darkness and the mists of sin's shadows? Blind and trapped and enslaved to your sin under the furious wrath and frown of the anger of God? Anyone? Because that's where Israel was. That's where Israel was. And yet by the sheer mercy and kindness of God, obliteration of their sin was offered and extended. And so you see now, you see what forgiveness of sin is, don't you? Forgiveness is the removal of the cloud to see the sun of God's glory. What I'm saying is forgiveness of sin is not an end in itself. It is a means to an end. It is God getting your sin out of the way to bring you home to God. Forgiveness is God's pursuit of our joy in him at the cost of his son's life. Because if you love the cross, then surely you must love what it was designed to do, namely get your sin out of the way and bring you home to God as the treasure of your soul. That's forgiveness. And although the cross of Christ is not mentioned here 
as the cause of forgiveness. When we get to chapter 53, it is mentioned, isn't it? Oh, for that chapter, when we get there. And so, believer in Christ, an unbeliever who needs Christ, do you see this morning the beauty of forgiveness? That it is the permanent dissipation of your sins forever so that you can see and savor the glory of God above all things. That is forgiveness. And you can totally tell that God was using his kindness to bring them to repentance. Look at the end of verse 22. He says, return to me. Return to me for I have, or better, I will redeem you. If you would just repent and relent, I will redeem you. I will free you from the guilt and the power and the slavery of your sin. Look at verse 23. Verse 23, it's incredible. Notice what it is. It's a sample of the celebration that's going to happen when Israel finally does repent. <laughs> Look at the text. Shout for joy, O heavens. Why? For Yahweh has done it. Break forth with a shout of joy, O lower parts of the earth. Shout joyfully, O mountains, O forest and every tree in it. Why? For Yahweh has redeemed Jacob and in Israel he will show his glory. What is that but a sneak peek and preview of the end of the age? Isn't it? What is that? But a, but a theatrical trailer to the end of history when Israel's forgiven and reconciled to God. That's exactly what it is. And you can totally tell that when that happens, it will not be quiet. Look at the language. Shout for joy. Shout joyfully. Break forth with a shout of joy. That's a lot of joy there. Notice the objects who are joyful. The heavens and the depths, the mountains and the trees shouting for joy at the top of their lungs as if they were alive. What is the point? The point is not that mountains have voice boxes or that trees have lungs. The point is, is that the future rejoicing of creation is a vivid way to say that even creation itself is waiting. Romans 8.19 For the arrival and the redemption of the sons of God. Which is exactly what Isaiah describes at the end of verse 23. Look what he says. Why? Why will creation rejoice? Why will mountains and trees shout for joy? Look at the reason. Because God has, or rather God will redeem Jacob and he will show his glory in Israel. Notice, not show his glory to Israel, show his glory in Israel. In the land, physically dwelling among them. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. You understand this is not who they were then. This is not who they are now. But it is who they will be in the future. So you can tell, can't you? You can tell the, the point of this preview to come, can you not? Yahweh gives his unforgiven, unrepentant people a glimpse of the future. Here it is, as a way to ask them, do you want this? Would you like to be a part of this? Would you like to be among the redeemed at the end of the age, shouting for joy at the top of their lungs? Do you want to be there when God shows his glory in Israel? Because you can have that, you know. That 
is the future that could have been theirs. And if you do not know Jesus Christ this morning, that is the future that could be yours. If they just pride their fingers off their idols and come back to Yahweh as the treasure of their souls, everything God had ever promised would be theirs to enjoy forever and ever and ever. This is the kindness of God to lead them to repentance. Let me ask you this, beloved. Do you see anything remotely suspicious in your life? Anything at all? Lurking in your life, any misplaced priorities? Any patterns in your life that you can't seem to break and you can't seem to shake? Because you understand what that is, right? Those are the symptoms of idolatry. Are you like Israel, secretly sowing the noxious weeds of idolatry, but hoping that roses will grow? What I mean is, are you looking to something, anything other than Christ to supply what he alone is able to provide? Is there anything, anything at all encroaching upon the sacred ground of your soul to be reserved for Christ alone? Because now you know the solution. Now you know the remedy for idolatry. The only effective remedy against the seductive pull of idolatry is to get your soul captivated by the supremacy of God from the pages of Scripture. Because if your heart be taken with God, it will not be taken by that which tries to replace God. Which brings us to the fifth and final way that Yahweh purges idolatry. Number five, he purges idolatry through the sovereignty with which he performs his plan. Through the sovereignty with which he performs his plan. And I know, I know this has been a theme. Sovereignty has been a theme again and again for week after week ever since chapter 40. And the reason why it has is because that's what these people needed to hear. Does it make sense? These people were a people of faded hope and and grim despair. And what that means is that nothing quite alleviates the fears and terrors of the human heart more than a heaping helping of the sovereignty of God, which is exactly what God gives them. And this makes sense, doesn't it? it? It makes total sense that idols are most effectively purged out of the soul when we can stand in awe of the dominion of God over everything. And that's exactly what Isaiah gives us. In verses 24 through 28, Yahweh gives us five, five demonstrations of his sovereignty with which he performs his plan. And when we're done, you tell me if idols can compete. Number one. Number one, demonstration of his sovereignty. Yahweh is the cause of creation. Yahweh is the cause of creation. Look at verse 24. Thus says Yahweh, your Redeemer, and the one who formed you from the womb, I am Yahweh who created all things, the one who spread out the heavens alone, the one who spread out the earth, who was with me. And it makes sense, doesn't it? To begin at the beginning, as in the beginning of creation, Because you understand, don't you, the one who made all things gets to rule all things. And yet notice, notice very carefully how Yahweh frames the issue. 
For the fourth time in this very chapter, he calls himself a redeemer. Thus says Yahweh, your redeemer, the one who formed you from the womb. You understand, to redeem is to deliver. To redeem is to save. And more times than they could possibly recount, he had redeemed them, had he not? He redeemed them from Egypt. He redeemed them from the Canaanites. He redeemed them from the Midianites. He redeemed them from the Ebionites, from the Moabites, from the Ammonites. The very year in which Isaiah wrote this chapter, he had redeemed them from the armies of Assyria. 185,000 soldiers nuked by the sovereign power of God. And Yahweh is not done with his redeeming work, is he? In and through his son, he redeems from sin. He redeems from death. He redeems ruined sinners from the flames of hell itself. He is their redeemer. He is our redeemer. And yet notice very carefully the logic of the text. Look what he says. Thus says Yahweh, your redeemer. Here it is. The one who formed you from the womb. It's very interesting. He's building a case here. You see, the one who redeemed them is the one who formed them from the womb. Meaning what? Meaning God is the one who made them as a nation, right? God is the one who caused Israel to exist as a people group. Get this. Even when Abraham was a fertilized egg in his mother's womb, Yahweh supervised the entire process and gave him a son, made him a family, made him into a nation. And the point is, the very one who made them is the very one who made everything. Do you see? Verse 24. Thus says Yahweh, the one who formed you from the womb, I am Yahweh, I have made all things, stretching out the heavens alone, spreading out the earth, who was with me. That is incredible. What would Yahweh just said shatters every idolatrous bone in their body. And the reason is because in that day, every nation had their own deity. Every deity had their own little plot of land that they defended. Every god had his particular thing that he was responsible over, the thing that he had made, the thing he was responsible to do. And all those deities were supposedly engaged in some cosmic combat behind the scenes and a spiritual mosh pit vying one another for control of territories. And you see it, right? What Yahweh just said makes all of that nonsense literally meaningless. Why? Because he is the god who made everything. He's not only the God of Israel, he's the God of the Canaanites. And he's the God of Egypt. And the God of Assyria. And the God of Babylon. And the God of Persia. And the God of Greece. And of Rome. And Afghanistan. And India. And China. And North Korea. And Canada. And here. And everywhere. Don't you see? That is why he can and must be trusted. We need to get back, church. 
We need to reclaim our passion for the doctrine of creation, literal six days out of nothing, because the same God who began all things is the same God who rules all things, is the same God who will end all things. If our protology is weak, our eschatology will be weak. If we do not trust God for what he did at the the beginning, we will not trust him for what he will do at the end. The same God who made the heavens and the earth will make a new heavens and earth and everything in between is under his command. Number two. Number two is two for the price of one. Yahweh frustrates pagan divination and human innovation. Yahweh frustrates pagan divination and human innovation. In other words, one of the things over which Yahweh is sovereign are all the pagan powers in the world. Look at verse 25. Yahweh is the one who frustrates the signs of the, and there's debate about who this is or what this is, but frustrates the signs of the diviners. And he makes a mockery of those who practice divination. He is the one who causes the wise to turn back. And their knowledge he will turn into foolishness. If you look carefully, you can see the structure of the text, can't you? Part one is pagan divination. Part two is human innovation. And God is sovereign over both. Notice, notice part one, Yahweh is the one who frustrates the signs of the diviners and though, and he makes a mockery of those who practice divination. Same thing, said two different ways. What does it mean? The point is the fortune-telling wizards of the world, the astrologers, the shamans, the sorcerers, with their tarot cards and crystal balls, though they seem to be in touch with the spirit world, they cannot do what they claim. They don't know the future. They don't control the future. They don't call the shots. There are no forces or powers operating independently of God's control. No, knowing and controlling the future is what it means for God to be God. That is his area of expertise. And yet, part two, God is sovereign over human innovation. Look at the text. End of the verse. God is the one who turns back the wise. And he makes their knowledge, turns their knowledge into foolishness. And when he says wise there, he doesn't mean wise people who love God's word. He means the people of the world who think they're wise. He means the innovators, the experts, the so-called authorities, the professionals, the, the specialists of the world to whom, in whom we might be tempted to place just a little too much trust or, or confidence to be reserved for God alone. And you could look at verse 25 and say, well, that's kind of interesting. But that was kind of for pagans back then and for Israel and their struggles. That verse doesn't really apply to me. I'm not tempted by divination. I don't own a crystal ball. I don't use sorcery. I don't blindly follow the experts of the world. And yet, and yet, how often does the culture use experts and professionals of the world as if they were wizards and shamans? The culture takes what science and doctors say as infallible. They treat science like magic. 
and medicine like potions and doctors and psychologists are the priests of the day and they alone have the secrets. They alone have the knowledge that we can only dream about and we should blindly follow them, the world says. And yet how often, even recently, the wisdom of the world has been turned to folly. My point is, and I think God's point is, there is a level of trust that belongs to God alone. Number three. Number three, Yahweh is the one who brings restoration and the confirmation of his word. Yahweh brings restoration and confirmation of his word. In other words, in other words, Yahweh is sovereign enough to keep his promises. Look at verse 26. Yahweh is the one who confirms the word of his servant, and he will fulfill the counsel of his messengers. He is the one who says to Jerusalem, you will be inhabited, and to the cities of Judah, you will be built, and I will raise up her ruins. Imagine, imagine what it would be like to be an Israelite in Babylon in exile. Imagine what that would be like. Use your imagination. You were ripped from home, loaded onto a cattle car, shipped to Babylonian slums reserved for the Jews, and the last thing you saw were cities and towns leveled to the ground. The great city of Jerusalem turned into a pile of smoldering bricks. And then imagine you read this. Yahweh is the one who confirms the word to his servant. And he will fulfill the counsel of his messengers. In other words, he causes his word to come to pass. He fulfills what he spoke through the mouths of the prophets. What will he fulfill? What promise will he keep? Look at the text. God is the one who says to Jerusalem, you will be inhabited and your cities will be built. And I will raise up her ruins. Do you see? Do you see what this is? It's the promise of restoration. It's the promise of restoration because you have to understand the people to whom Isaiah was writing in chapters 40 through 66 were the very people in exile in Babylon. You know that, right? These were the very people who saw Jerusalem get leveled to the ground. And yet, what does this sovereign, omnipotent God promise to his people? What does he, what does he promise? Jerusalem will be inhabited. Cities will be rebuilt. I will raise up her ruins. The point is, Babylon was not the end. The story was not over. And it's still not over for the people of Israel. There are still more promises to be fulfilled because 70 years after the people of Judah went to Babylon, this very verse was fulfilled. In 539 B.C., the stunning turn of events that no one but God could have predicted. The Jews were released, restored to the land. The cities were rebuilt. The ruins raised up, which means Isaiah 40 through 66 is comforting a people in the midst of an exile that hadn't even happened yet. And I can imagine, 
someone saying, well, that's great. That's great. Prophecy made, prophecy fulfilled, that's got nothing to do with me. It's a good point. Except for the fact, except for the fact that this whole prophecy predicted a century beforehand and fulfilled exactly, get this, this is a reminder to us that every single other promise God made is a thousand percent reliable. Don't you see? Prophecies made and fulfilled with precision are collateral. It's collateral for us. Does that make sense? Meaning that it shows that every other thing God has promised is so sure and certain and guaranteed that the only logical response is to live radically for Jesus Christ. Prophecies made, prophecies fulfilled, free us to be holy, to fight sin, to be generous, to fight greed and materialism and proclaim the gospel no matter the cost to our own lives. Why? Because we know that no matter what it is that happens to us, the ending remains profoundly unchanged. God wins it all in the end. Number four, we're almost done, hang in there. Number four, Yahweh is the one who causes desolation. Yahweh causes desolation. Look at verse 27, short verse, kind of interesting, kind of cryptic. Look what he says. Yahweh is the one who says to the abyss, be dried up and your rivers I will dry up. <laughs> Seems cryptic, kind of bizarre, no way to interpret that. Moving on. No, no, no. Hang on. Hang around that verse just for a moment because here's the thing. Should you read the Psalms and the prophets, you would notice a pattern begin to emerge you would notice that bodies of water like deeps and seas and oceans and abyss and rivers are used as pictures for enemies. Of invading armies, rebel powers, storming the gates, flooding the cities. We saw this back in chapter 10 with Assyria. Assyria was an overflowing army crushing everything in its path. Which means, which means for God to dry up the rivers means what? What does it mean? God is the one who wrecks the armies of the world. Right? Whenever an army wins in history, God is the one who gave the victory. Whenever an army loses in history, God is the one who brought the desolation. In a politically charged day like it is now, with it what seems to be another World War III on the brink, what comfort does it bring to our souls that God is the one who dries the rivers? Number five. Number five, and you're going to be tempted to not believe what you're about to hear. You're going to be tempted to not believe this, but number five, Yahweh is the one who performs predestination. Yahweh is the one who performs predestination, meaning, listen very carefully, God predestines people to perform his will. Individual people. You see, God isn't just sort of like vaguely sovereign in a general way. I remember years ago reading A.W. Tozer's The Knowledge of the Holy, and he's got a chapter on the sovereignty of God. Every chapter in that book is really great, except for the one on the sovereignty of God. 
He's got this whole thing where like, well, history is like a cruise ship and God controls the des destination, but you know, God doesn't have anything to do with what people do on, on the ship. And it's like, I see what he's trying to get at. People do make real choices. They have real responsibility. That's true, but that doesn't mean that God doesn't have meticulous sovereignty over every detail, because he does. I'm not saying that makes sense. That's just what the Bible says. Yahweh is sovereign over individual lives and the choices they make. Look at verse 28. Yahweh is the one who says to Cyrus, to Cyrus, he, or maybe even you, are my shepherd. He, Cyrus, is my shepherd. He will fulfill all of my good pleasure. And this is what Cyrus says. To Jerusalem, you will be built and the foundation of your palace will be laid. Do you see that? God is the one to, that speaks to Cyrus. And that's great. Cyrus who? Cyrus who? I mean, don't you hate it when someone's telling you a story about people you don't know, and they only refer to them by the first name as if you should know them, and you have no idea who they're talking about? That's what God does, just like this. You see, nobody, nobody in Isaiah's day had a clue who Cyrus was. Do you know why? Because he wasn't even born yet. And he wouldn't be born for another hundred years after Isaiah wrote this. And he wouldn't be known by Israel until another 60 years after that. Because you know why? Do you know who Cyrus is? The Persian king who took Babylon down. <laughs> Isaiah's writing in 701 BC, Cyrus conquered Babylon in 539 BC. That's 162 years later, which means, yes, this is probably the most explicit prophecy made in the entirety of the Bible because this dude is mentioned by name a full century before he was ever even born. Welcome to the wonderful world of the sovereignty of God. Welcome to the deepest power that shatters the futility of idolatry in our lives. Notice what he says to Cyrus. Cyrus, you are my shepherd. You, Cyrus, are going to take care of my people. Notice, he, Cyrus, he will fulfill all of my good pleasure, God says. He's not going to have a clue that everything he does is what I decreed him to do, and yet he will do my will nevertheless. And what? What will Cyrus do? What's he going to do? Well, that's interesting because you look at this very verse, you look at verse 13 in the next chapter, and you look at Ezra chapter 1, verse 1, and you find that this Persian king predestined by God is going to perform these things. Look what he says in the verse. He will say, Cyrus will say to Jerusalem, you will be built and the foundations of your palace will be laid. Meaning what? Meaning this pagan king who has no idea who Yahweh is will free the Jews to come back home and not only give them permission to build, rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild their palace, but he's even going to cover the cost and pay the bill. And 162 years later, that's exactly what happened. <laughs> you see, God is the one who gave the order. God did that. Because God is a God who does what he pleases in heaven and on earth. I close with this. 
you understand God is a God who does not ask permission from anybody or say please to anyone. God, this, this is not a God who waits with bated breath for the free will of man to kind of do their thing before he, before he kind of intervenes and tries to make the best of it. No, this is a God who steers every moment of history according to his predetermined plan. This is a God who moves and works and acts with one particular aim to de demonstrate to the people that know him and the people that love him, namely, that he is God alone and there is no one like him. And that right there is the power that crushes our idols and produces faith in him alone. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we wouldn't have expected this much glory to be contained in just a few verses at the end of chapter 44 in Isaiah. We didn't expect that. And yet, Lord, what a testimony to the depths, the riches of your word. That there are undiscovered depths in your word, unfathomable to human beings just like this. And Lord, this was a lot for us to absorb. This was a lot to keep track of. And yet, I pray that what this would do was build in us, that you would use texts like this to build in us a framework, even, even in lenses by which we interpret the world in our lives. That you're not a God who merely passively allows things to happen and simply makes the best of it. No, you are the God who chooses, ordains, decrees the Cyruses of the world and uses them to execute your will. What security, O oh Lord? What, what hope, what joy in that? And there is where the power to destroy idols is found. Help us, O oh Lord. We easily gravitate towards idols, and I pray for anyone here who does not know you, O oh Christ, that they are in, those who are enslaved to their idols who think they're right, who think they're wise, but they're actually fools. I pray that you would awaken them, or even now, even in this moment, awaken them from the dead to have eyes open to see the transcendent worth of your glory, and they would yield their life to you in repentance and faith. And it's in your matchless name that we pray.